If you love hillbilly horror stories, we think you're going to love one strange thing as well. Every other week, they search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. In this episode, Texas is invaded by a very unwelcome and extremely gelatinous visitor. Could this blob be a particularly virulent fungi? Or, as residents suspect, something a little more extraterrestrial? Stick around and find out. Then subscribe to One Strange Thing anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. You've probably seen clips of early sci-fi films, boxy robots, spaceships that look like milk cartons, and aliens that are definitely people in a lot of silver makeup. But in 1958, B-movie science fiction got a little more amorphous. By that, of course, we mean that the blob was released. As the title suggests, the movie concerned an alien, well, blob, that crashes to Earth in a meteorite. It proceeds to dissolve entire towns, growing bigger and redder and more jello-y as it goes. Though ostensibly serious horror, this movie is a lot of fun and camp at its absolute finest. Still, the blob is a little creepy for all the cheesy special effects. There's something deeply unnerving about a creature that's so clearly not human or plant or animal. We find ourselves uneasy because it looks so otherworldly. And that's been the case for a very long time. Throughout history, we've seen that whenever humans encounter a weird slime, chaos ensues. According to The Guardian, we have written records expressing anxiety about star jelly appearing on trees and grass dating back to the 14th century. Semi-translucent, milky white, and wiggly, this star jelly baffled our ancestors, who, understandably, assumed it was brought to Earth on astral transport like meteors. It's this same star jelly that inspired Hollywood to glamorize the blob to begin with, and the scattered sightings of such weirdness in nature still mystify today's scientists. Back in 2009, the National Geographic Society got a hold of some apparent star jelly-esque samples discovered in the United States. According to the Times of London, their scientists couldn't work out how to obtain the jelly's DNA, so they couldn't quite figure out what the jelly was. Different guesses have ranged from a very strange fungus to some sort of chemical waste to, yes, cosmic debris splatting down to Earth. And many scientists, and we mean real and prestigious ones, the kind who work for London's Natural History Museum, have come up with a theory involving frogs and birds and unfertilized amphibian eggs. In the interest of letting everyone keep their lunch, we'll skip the details there. 
But you'll note that we haven't told you anyone has solved the mysterious star jelly phenomenon. And that's because we really, truly don't know. Blobs, as it turns out, might as well be from another planet. And it's on that note that today's story begins. We start just outside Dallas, Texas, in May of 1973. A woman named Marie Harris lived in Garland with her husband. We don't know much about the Harrises or their lives outside of this particular incident. What we do know is that one late spring morning, Marie Harris looked out her bedroom window and noticed a white something, for lack of a better word, a blob, in her garden. Marie described this initial blob to Reuters as pulsating, quote, foamy and creamy, and, quote, the size of an oatmeal cookie. We also know that Marie left the blob alone, at least initially. But unfortunately for Marie and her garden, leaving it alone was not the best move, because two weeks later, on May 24th, the blob had expanded. Marie, continuing with her oddly specific metaphor, told Reuters that the blob was now, quote, the size of 16 oatmeal cookies. And further, she added that it could not be destroyed. Finally, the Harrises decided that it was time to destroy the thing. Reuters reported that Marie hacked the blob open with her garden hoe, revealing, quote, black mucus. Though she and her unnamed husband managed to chop it into small pieces, for some reason, their next move was to spread those pieces around the garden. If they'd hoped those fragments would dissolve into the earth, the blob swiftly punished them for their optimism, because two days later, it had come back, and it was twice as big. And not only had it gotten much bigger, the color had changed. Now, the outside was foamy and creamy and buttercup yellow, not white, Slashed open by poor Mr. Harris, the inside of the blob now revealed bright orange goo, not black mucus. Understandably concerned that the chopping and spreading had somehow empowered the blob, the Harrises shifted strategies. Now, they sprayed it with nicotine, which, we understand, sounds like the most 1970s solution ever, but it's actually both a legitimate and powerful pesticide. But even then, things somehow got worse. Reuters reported that the nicotine seemed to only restrain the blob, not kill it. And on being sprayed, the blob seemed to bleed, instantly oozing red and purple goo. A few days later, on May 29th, the Associated Press got in on the action. This article was accompanied by a photo of Marie Harris in her garden, using a long bamboo stick to poke a misshapen white lump on her grass. But this story wasn't about the Harrises. In fact, the latest news was worrying for everyone who wasn't a mysterious blob. Now, at least two other residents in the Metro Dallas area had their very own, quote, pulsating cancerous blobs of matter. And those residents were, as you can probably imagine, not taking it very well. One of them, a woman who lived in North Dallas but refused to be identified, told the reporter, I'm scared to death. I have the same thing on my hedge. 
I can't kill it. And Edna Smith, who lived just east of Dallas, had noticed a blob working its way up a telephone pole near her home. It was red and pulsating, like the one I read about. For heaven's sake, what is it? For her part, the original blob host, Marie Harris, was running out of ideas. It had rained hard the previous Friday, and the downpour seemed to have washed away her blob entirely. But by Monday morning, she told the AP, I looked again, three more had grown in its place. With interest in the Dallas blobs growing worldwide, almost as fast as the blobs themselves, everyone wanted to know what on earth they actually were. The AP reported that Growth International, a laboratory based in Colorado, had sent a scientist to Marie Harris's home to collect samples. That scientist, a man named Arnold Dittman, made his confusion abundantly clear to the AP. Bacteria, if it is bacteria, have tremendous growth potential and under proper conditions can change to a completely different species in a few seconds. Maybe that's what the thing is, a new mutation. But we really don't know what it is. I'm not saying that happens all the time. We should note that Arnold collected tiny spores of Marie's blob and later reported, Yes, it's growing. We put samples in a jar and before long we noticed pressure was building up inside. As the scientists went to work on their expanding samples, there were, of course, other theories floating around. And we're delighted to tell you that chief among those theories was, naturally, aliens. Join us on a trip 75 miles northwest of Marie Harris's home, all the way to Aurora, Texas. Also back in time, to 1897. Back then, the Dallas Morning News reported that a UFO had crashed into a local windmill, destroying it and killing the UFO's otherworldly pilot. That creature was removed from the wreckage and given, quote, a proper Christian burial in Aurora's small cemetery. What was left of the UFO itself was mostly buried at the crash site, and the incident faded into local legend until 1973. You see, all this talk of an unidentified grounded object had gotten people thinking about the Dallas-Fort Worth area's history with the unexplainable. The exact rationale for a near-century-old alleged alien corpse spawning a suburbanite blob 75 miles away is, well, unclear. But we do know that the connection was made. As one of Marie Harris's neighbors mused to Reuters, I do hope it's no relation to the spaceman they think might be buried over there in Aurora. Marie's neighbor wasn't the only person thinking that way. In fact, the International Unidentified Flying Objects Bureau took an interest in the blobs and announced that they were seeking legal means to have the pilot's body exhumed for testing. UFO enthusiasts were clearly making pilgrimages to Aurora too, as the Dallas-area suburbanites were hacking at their blobs, the Associated Press reported that the pilot's grave in Aurora Cemetery was tampered with. An armed guard was soon posted outside that cemetery, and he took his job very seriously. As he told one reporter, I don't care if you're Jesus Christ. You can't come in. What's more, 
Fragments from the crash site have been dug up and sent to several universities for analysis. Though, as the AP noted, professional metal and treasure hunters had previously failed to work out just what they were made of. In any case, the rush to work out the origin of this substance had little impact on Marie Harris and her comrades in blobs. Marie, as it turned out, had better luck taking advice from a stranger than from the professionals. On May 30th, the Associated Press ran a triumphant headline if there ever was one. Tobacco mixture kills Dallas blob. Clearly having too much fun, the reporter continued, the substance was pronounced dead Tuesday, another victim of nicotine. As Marie Harris told it, she'd received a phone call from a woman she didn't know, suggesting she try applying a more powerful, quote, tobacco and water gruel. I figured I had nothing to lose and tried it, Marie told the AP, and so she applied the tobacco gruel. If only there had been an Instagram or TikTok in 1973, because the time-lapse footage of the blob's demise would have gone viral. Within a few hours, Marie said, the pulsating blobs stilled, and they dried up so completely that all that remained was a white crust caking her backyard grass. And so, Marie's blob was dead. We never did get updates about the other women grappling with their own Texan yard blobs. So, maybe they bit the dust, too. In any case, it was the end of an era. The blob phenomenon had, for weeks, gripped a press and a public that was probably jonesing for some weird news. After all, the news cycle in May of 1973 was a little preoccupied with an entirely different, much less fun story involving water. Flubber's boring cousin takes over a few suburban yards for a few weeks, makes itself at home, only to be vaporized by tobacco. It's an American story if we've ever heard one. And it would have been just that. A fun story in a dark time. Something weird and fluky that could happen to anyone. Like a UFO sighting. That is, if not for one strange thing. Even though the blobs had died off in those yards in Texas, they lived on in those samples that the scientists had taken and sent to labs. And biology's greatest minds were trying to identify them long after most people had stopped paying attention. But those great minds were becoming less and less reassuring. Remember Arnold Dittman, the scientist tasked with identifying Marie Harris's blob? He told the AP that, it had probably been a mutation of an ordinary bacteria or fungi, but what exactly, he couldn't say. Bacteria and fungi are, of course, different organisms entirely. And, according to the Academy of Sciences, about one-fifth of all life on Earth is a bacteria or a fungus. For perspective, humans? We're currently just about one one-hundredth of all life on Earth. So, suffice it to say, when Arnold Dittman determined the blob was maybe bacteria or maybe a fungus, he had really narrowed it down not at all. Though, he did make sure to rule out the option that was actually fun. People fear the unknown. We all dream, 
and we'd probably all like to see something from outer space, but I doubt if it's anything like that. Here's the thing, though. Our friend Arnold Dittman was never able to get a clearer answer. He told the AP that he was only able to do a preliminary examination before the blob samples stopped growing and died. No tobacco necessary. In what sounds like the lead-up to a truly terrible sci-fi B-movie, Arnold also let the AP know that he was attempting to revive what was left of the blob. Fortunately for us all, he had no success. Though the original Blob was now in Blob Heaven, there was no putting a stop to the Blob mania that had seized the nation. The Capital Times of Madison, Wisconsin had run one of those Associated Press stories we mentioned and got so much reader mail that they went to local experts for more insight. Paul Allen, a professor in the University of Wisconsin's Botany Department, posited that the Blobs could be an unusually large slime mold. Buckle in, because this man really, really loved his blobs and his slimes. He told the Capital Times that slime mold is both an animal and a plant, and it's gooey stuff that climbs all over soil or wood. And that might sound familiar, but Paul Allen went on to say that slime mold isn't normally so large, nor should it be particularly difficult to get rid of. It should be fairly easy to kill, with salt, perhaps. When things dry up, it will go away. Whether it was slime mold or not, Paul Allen offered up the blob-afflicted homeowners in Texas some advice that only he was capable of following. Just relax and enjoy it. If it is slime mold, it will fruit and form some very beautiful things. And if that wasn't helpful enough, he added, if it is some creature from outer space, it may behave differently. And that summer, there must have been blob fever in the air along the Great Lakes. Because in mid-June of 1973, in Warren, Michigan, another blob showed up. This one was creeping up a wishing well in the petunia bed of Jane Spry, who seemed relatively unconcerned. She told the Detroit Free Press that the off-white, foamy mass had appeared overnight and slinked along the edge of her wishing well and had grown to six inches wide and 20 inches long. Like the blobs in Texas, Jane's oozed a blood-like goop. But as she told the Detroit Free Press, if you punctured the top, a yellowish stuff would come out and then the insides would turn dark. Yet again, local experts in biology and fungi took a look, couldn't come to a solid conclusion, and settled on it probably being some kind of slime mold. Regrettably, we couldn't find a single follow-up as to what became of Jane Spry and her blob. But at least initially, Jane seemed sort of proud of her petunia-dwelling monstrosity. As she told the Detroit Free Press, Texas don't have everything. As should probably come as no surprise at this point in the story, the state of Texas heard Jane's pronouncement and simply replied, hold my beer. In July of 1973, nearly two months after the Dallas Blobs made headlines, the Austin American ran an absolutely impeccable piece of blob journalism. The author, 
staff writer Holly Hudlow opened the article by recounting a conversation with her editor, which we've reenacted for you here. Hudlow, forget obituaries. There's a blob on Bernie Drive. Get quickly out there and have a look. Uh, a what? A blob, you know, like the one that drove everybody up the wall in Dallas a couple of months back. Austin's got its own blob. Go. And Holly Hudlow thought to herself, Hot dog. A blob. A mysterious mucous membrane. I went. Driving along, I envisioned a growing, unidentifiable mass pulsating and expanding. I have seen both The Blob and Return of the Blob on television. Holly's experience in the field, as she told it, was somewhat less dramatic. She arrived at the home of a Mr. and Mrs. Clarence Lyons, where adolescent blob enthusiast Matthew Lyons greeted her. He'd happened upon his blob, very like the other blobs we've told you about, but this one was his, while mowing the lawn. By the time Holly Hudlow arrived, the blob had fizzled into an unimpressive six-inch-long white crust. Holly Hudlow went on to describe, in gloriously excruciating detail, the process of Matthew and his brother cutting and stabbing the dried blob in an attempt to draw blood. Failing to do so, being that the blob had dried out completely, Matthew instead showed off the fresher, wetter pink one he was now keeping in a jar. Holly reported that he intended to keep it in his bedroom, a horrible idea, and maybe slice off a piece to give to his pretty neighbor, who wanted to plant it in her backyard, also a horrible idea. The article is accompanied by a painfully awkward photo of an adolescent Matthew crouched in his backyard, absolutely rocking a Hawaiian shirt and a bowl cut. In his left hand is the tiny jar containing his bedroom blob. In his right, he delicately stabs what looks like a desiccated chicken breast with a pocket knife. And here's the thing about all this sensationalism. Today's scientists have all but settled on these blobs being slime molds, just like Paul Allen in Wisconsin had guessed. In fact, slime molds and blobs are now synonymous in the communities that care about such things. And nowadays, science knows far more about these strange beings. For example, according to CNN, they have 720 sexes and can solve puzzles despite not having brains. We're told that the Paris Zoological Park has one on display, in part because they're typically native to European forest floors. Like the blobs American suburbanites grappled with in the early 1970s, these are also tricky to kill. But still, it just doesn't quite add up. The captive slime mold in Paris is bright yellow and spreads in tiny tendrils, not like Marie Harris's or the other blobs in Texas or Michigan. Those blobs, and at this point, they really feel like our blobs, showed up suddenly and were the size of 16 cookies. And their appearance was very different off-white and pink and foamy and flubbery and sometimes bleeding. To be honest, it's tough to find any photo of slime molds that match what we've described for you here. And trust us, we've looked. If you so desire, we encourage you to give it a Google image search and see what you think. Our DMs are always open to blob pics, and no, that is not a euphemism. 
Who knows? Perhaps one of you will be the citizen scientist who puts centuries of blob anxiety to rest. A foolproof kill method or a positive ID. It's about time someone figured it out. But on the other hand, it might just be time for us to accept that some mysteries are a little, well, squishier than we'd like. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There, you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for $5 a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in our show notes.